Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome back to History Rage, the podcast where we invite historians and the heritage community to make a gallant last stand against the blitzkrieg of myth and to make an admirable charge against falsehood in the public narrative. I, once again, am public historian Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host and good friend, Kyle Glover. Hello, everyone. So, welcome to season five. How have we managed this? You know, that means we've got more episodes than uh, uh, Battlestar Galactica. I mean, the new one, that is, of course. Yeah, and one more epi- one more uh, season than Babylon 5 should have had. Mm. I don't believe that's... Uh, you've seen that, though, have you, Kyle? No. No, you absolutely should. Yes, but we digress. Welcome back, History Ragers. I'm glad that at least three of you have stayed with us thus far. This week, dear listener, we're back in your World War II comfort zone and back to the early days of the war, the start of the war, in fact, before many of the Allied countries got involved. And to take us on this trip, we welcome historian, researcher, author of First to Fight. You've seen him on Hitler's Circle of Evil, and now you can hear him on History Rage. We welcome Roger Morehouse. Roger, welcome to History Rage. Hello, chaps. Thanks for having me. Feeling angry? <laughs> Always. <laughs> good, good. We want to kick this one off with some style. <laughs> now, you've come to us by recommendation from our previous Ragers, uh, Guy Walters being one and Rob Lyman being another. Right, and good. I've just finished reading First to Fight, and, yeah. and I have to say, what a read. Uh, that was a real eye-opener. Thank you. But, oh, you're welcome. Absolutely welcome. But for our other listener out there, can you tell us a bit about your background and your career and how you ended up where you are? Yeah, I, well, professional historian. I've now, this is, I'm just finishing my next book after First to Fight, which is my seventh. So um, reasonably long in the tooth now. Um, I studied history at University of London, School of Slavonic Studies. I was kind of fascinated by 1989, the, the uh, revolutions from 1989, which is what made me want to go to university originally. Yeah. I was actually out in the world of work. I was about 21 when I went to university. So um, it was quite a big change to do that. But I, I found 89 fascinating and particularly Poland. Um, mm. So Poland was kind of, uh, to some extent, has always been sort of front center in my, in my interests. So I studied Central European history, a lot of Polish history. Ended up uh, working for one of my professors there, Professor Norman Davies, who is pretty much the British authority on Polish history. So, and then when I carried on and I co-authored with Norman and then uh, started writing in my own right, initially doing German history, uh, and then I've sort of um, migrated eastward. (laughs) The last couple of books have been much more on Polish history. And then the last one, as you mentioned, First to Fight, which came out in 2019, yeah. Uh, was on the, I would say, pretty much forgotten Polish campaign of 1939, uh, yeah. which really doesn't feature in the Western narrative of the war at all, except in the one aspect which I'm going to rage about in a minute. <laughs> well, nice, nicely introed into <laughs> that rage, so let's dive right into it. Roger, 
would you please tell our listeners with as much emotion as you feel it warrants <laughs> just what it is you wish people would just get over? To put it very, very simply, Paul, it's cavalry against tanks. It's one of the biggest myths of the war. Um, it's the pretty much the thing. When, you, when I was writing my book, First to Fight, mm. on the September campaign, if I spoke to anyone, I mean, even, even historians, even probably some of the people that you've had on your show, <laughs> um, if you spoke to any of them about you know, what they know about the September campaign, they would all come out with the same thing, which was cavalry against tanks. And it's basically Hitler propaganda. It's Goebbels' propaganda from from World War Two. They had this. You know, the, the Germans are are you know are supremely more powerful in in every aspect than the Poles are in 1939. Mm. But the idea of the Poles charging German tanks on on horseback is is we, we have to appreciate is utterly ridiculous. Uh, it didn't happen. This is pure German propaganda to show that show the Poles not only as militarily and technologically inferior, but by extension yeah. as racially inferior, that they're that stupid. This is the kind of logic that the Germans were employing, that they're that stupid that they would actually do this. And it's a myth that has had remarkably long legs. So I was talking to a Polish friend of mine quite recently, and she has young kids, lives in nearby town to me, and she has young kids in, in, in an ordinary um, comprehensive uh, and they were being kind of teased with the cavalry against tanks nonsense in the in the schoolyard and this still is going around it's still going around in the younger generation in 2022 which is just absurd and it's long since that we should have just got got over this realized that it's propaganda that it never happened yeah. uh, and let it go and actually learn the real story of september 1939 rather than the goebbels myths Part of what I do in the book, I, I wanted to get to the bottom of that story to see where it came from, um, which is actually a really interesting exercise. And there are a couple of because I'm, you, you you might get people who will sort of email in or however whatever whatever methods of communication they use, they will they will say, well, didn't such and such happen at this place, and some things happen at this place. There are a couple of examples where Polish cavalry actually go into action against German infantry with tremendous mm-hmm. success if you can imagine you know a cavalry squadron bearing down on you and you're an infantryman that's pretty bloody terrifying uh, and they were tremendously successful bear in mind of course the poles also have tanks not as many as the germans and the germans crucially also have cavalry so the, this idea yeah. part of the mythology that, that goebbels is putting out in 1939 is that the germans are all these sort of you know chiseled jawed blonde-haired blue-eyed boys all on, all in tanks, all in armor, armored vehicles, and that the poles are these sort of idiots, backwoodsmen, illiterate, stupid, racially inferior, all on horseback. Right? It's like it's like you know the twentieth century meets the seventeenth century. That's kind of the the stereotypical image that was given by the by the um, German propaganda, and it's nonsense. You know, the, as I said, the Germans had more cavalry than the poles did in a, in in real terms. So they're yeah. still they're still operating a cavalry war as well. They're still pulling most of their guns with teams of horses rather than trucks. So this idea that even that the Germans are fully motorized in '39 is nonsense. So they're not actually that far apart in terms of what they're doing on the battlefield. But the Germans crucially have more tanks, more aircraft, more motorization than the Poles do, and that makes it very difficult for the Poles to actually you know get a foothold in the war. That's another question. 
but you'll get people who will say, well, didn't this happen here and didn't this happen there? Well, yes, you know, the couple of examples, as I said, where the Poles send the cavalry and it bears down on, on German infantry, takes the field with huge losses on the German side, and then they're countercharged by an armoured column, right? And with predictable yeah. results because horses don't do terribly well against 50 caliber ammunition. So uh, you can imagine that that goes down in, in the sort of German narrative as, oh, look, these, you know, you look at the, the field of battle afterwards strewn with dead horses and dead poles and say, look, these fools charged us with their, with their horses again. But that's not how it was. So there's a couple of examples like that. Um, and where the, where the myth actually came from, incidentally, I sort of tracked it down, which is part of my um, effort mm-hmm. at, at sort of debunking it for, for, all, for all eternity. Tracked it down to an engagement in the Battle of the Bzura, which was the main, the main sort of set piece battle within the September campaign. It all happens in kind of a vast area to the west of Warsaw. Uh, and in one of these engagements, exactly what I've just described happens. So the, the field of battle afterwards, the Germans win this engagement. Um, the field of battle is strewn with, you know, the bodies of horses and men and so on. Mm. Uh, and they bring out these sort of what we would now call embedded journalists one of whom was an yeah. Italian, whose name was Indra Montanelli. And he's brought out and they say, oh, look, at you know, this is the, this is the battlefield. Whatever, you know. And then you, he goes and writes his piece, which appears in the Corriere della Sera. And he writes this piece where he just imagines, I mean, he's only seen the aftermath, but he imagines what the battle had been like, how it had taken place on the basis of what he's seeing in front of him and what he's been told by the Germans. And he writes about this sort of cavalry charge against German armour. It's pure imagination, right? He didn't actually see it at all. So that that actually then is published in the Corriere della Sera, and the Germans then pick up on that, and they kind of run with it, and they say, rather than it's in a sense admitting and saying, this is our propaganda, they say, well, look, we've got an independent source. It's this Italian journalist has seen this and yeah. said this, right? So they've got so that's when they begin to run with it. And they and they really do run with it through the rest of 1939 into 1940. So that's an interesting story to, to look at how, you know, these propaganda stories kind of come into being as well. So we have this daft portrayal, really, of Poland being outdated, like you say, yeah. charging tanks with yeah. horses. So what is the real Poland as a fighting force? I mean, they can't be that bad. They last longer than France, despite being invaded by Germany and the Soviet Union. Absolutely. So yeah, they, I mean, they, can't, they can't be that outdated. No, you're right. They? I mean, you, you've, you've kind of stolen my punchline there, really. That you know, <laughs> They do. They last, actually, to be fair, they last five weeks in 39, which is, uh, if you look at the French campaign, that's six weeks. But still, um, that was Britain and France, and it, they were attacked in, you know, along one axis. Uh, in across western france so uh eastern france rather so yeah the the poles last for five weeks they're attacked from both sides the germans attack on the 1st of september and the soviets um attack on the 17th from the east so you've got this sort of massive pincer operation going on um with the poles stuck in the middle so Mm. yeah you have to ask you ask the question they you know in those circumstances when you when you look at those sort of raw statistics if you like or circumstances it doesn't look too bad and the poles actually acquit themselves very well and that's kind of the message of the book really is that they do acquit themselves very well considering all of the circumstances and the hardships that they face i mean one of the primary problems that the poles had was that they 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 really couldn't afford to equip themselves to the same standard as uh, the germans were the germans bear in mind in 39 are 
you know, it's, it's the most, it's the sort of supreme military force on the face of the planet in 1939, in terms of technology, in terms of training and everything else. So the Poles are always going to be up against it. And part of the problem that they had was that their, their military doctrine or their plan for 1939, they, they're no fools. They know they're up against it. But their, their plan for 39 is to engage the Germans because crucially they wanted to make sure that those alliances they had with the British and the French would be triggered. So they didn't want the British and the French to be able to say, well, you know, you've withdrawn all your forces from the Germans. So, you know, if you're not going to fight, why should we fight for you? Right. So they actually had forces up against the frontier with the Germans so that any invasion would sort of you know, trigger military action, which would then, they thought, trigger that British and French um, yeah. alliance. That was their logic. It's a crying shame it didn't, really. It is, it? really. Absolutely. Mm. So you can see the logic from the Polish perspective. But then, of course, once they'd engaged and hopefully, to their minds, triggered those, those um, alliances, they then had to disengage as quickly as possible because they're not going to stand toe-to-toe with the Germans. They know they're not going to do that. That's, that's daft. So they want to engage and then disengage as quickly as possible. And they wanted to withdraw to sort of more defensible lines. Problem you've got, of course, as I said earlier on, is that the Germans are more mobile than you are. The Germans have more uh, armor than you have, more you have more vehicles than you have, and they're always going to be faster that faster at advancing than you are at withdrawing. So that was the fundamental problem that they had. Essentially, they sort of stand much better against the um, against the Soviets, but again, because they're, they're rather slightly sort of similar level of of army, and again, very horse based. Yeah. They've got armor. Of course, the Soviets have a lot of armor. Um, but the Soviets are actually, the Soviet Red Army in 1939 is really not very good. Um, which the Germans noticed, of course. That's part of the reason that they attacked in 1941, as they realized that the Germans weren't, as uh, the Soviets were not, not actually that strong as a military force. But the Soviet, the, the Poles in 39 facing the Soviets are, you know, mainly sort of, um, you know, border guard units and, uh, and reserve units who are, who are being sort of withdrawn or, or uh, resting from the from the front against the Germans, so they're really paired to the bone on the Eastern Front. So that's a that's a slightly different conflict, but that the important point to make, sort of for for the historiography, is to is to say that it happened at all, because as we've seen in the last sort of three months in the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the sort of Kremlin model is very good at sort of creating its own narrative. Uh, and and sticking with it through come, come hell or high water, uh, yeah. and they and they stuck with that narrative of the fact that they didn't invade Poland in 1939. Another myth that I could rage about. Yeah. You know, they perennially saying that they didn't invade Poland in 1939. A Russian blogger actually went to prison in 2016 for for actually for saying that uh, the Red Army invaded Poland. Um, so it is a, it is a crime in in uh, Russia apparently, and now under under Putin. Uh, to to speak the truth, like so many other things. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but there we are. So um, so yeah, there's there's a lot there to sort of rage about. But the polls, to, to your original question, the polls, it's a, it's they're pretty good. They've got good good amount of um, trained men and reservists, over a million men under arms. They've got a reasonable force of tanks that are up to some sort of standards. You know, similar standard to you know the tanks that were available elsewhere, like Panzer Mark ones, Panzer Mark twos for those. Uh, mm-hmm. tank nerds out there so the the polish uh, 7tps are sort of s- quite similar t- in terms of their armor in terms of you know their firepower and so on to to panzer mark ones and twos the problem the poles have is that they have about 300 tanks in total which is not enough 
uh, yeah. against a German force, which is about two and a half thousand. So they so they do have, and the same thing with the Air Force. They have reasonably good aircraft, um, particularly these um, PZL thirty seven bombers, which were quite effective and were still fighting in week three of the campaign, for example. Polish fighters that were much more primitive, but were, they were flown with tremendous skill and bravery by Polish pilots. So the problems they have are primarily of numbers of, of you know good technology, but you know in the in a in a global sort of league table of of military forces, the Poles are actually pretty good. They're just yeah. nowhere near as good as the Germans, unfortunately. If I can just take you back to a point that you made when you were talking about uh, Russia and the. The, the invasion of Ukraine. Because yeah. one of the things that I p- picked out of the book is that when the Soviet Union come into Poland, yeah. it's under the guise of these people are really Russians and we're here to protect them from these Nazis. Yeah. Which seems to be a theme that carries on today. Yeah. It's, it, uh, to be fair, it's slightly, slightly different from that, Paul. It's, it's, I mean, it is a it is a propaganda narrative. They don't say, "Oh, we're invading," mm. and by the way, Hitler is our ally, which effectively he was. Um, the narrative that's given is that the Polish state has collapsed. Polish state, anyway, was this you know to the to the communist mind was this world of you know nobles and a feudal system that was you know completely abhorrent to the communists. So they had no love for Poland anyway, for various reasons, not least historic. Um, so they portrayed this as the Polish state having collapsed and they were coming in in what was essentially humanitarian action. Again, you can see the same parallels to yeah. 2016 and you know, the first first round of uh, the Ukraine invasion. So they did portray it as a humanitarian action to come in and to help, in inverted commas, the Belarusian, i.e. Belarus and Ukrainian populations that had been part of Poland help them to sort of navigate this collapse of the Polish state, right? That's the way it's described. So it's not necessarily that they're Russians. They're saying that they're, they're their fellow uh, Slavic brothers, as in, um, you know, Soviet brothers as Belarusians and Ukrainians rather than Russians and Russians themselves. So it's slightly, slightly different from what you said, but, you know, essentially the same thing. So, that, I mean, this is, this is part of, Again, it's another thing that I could rage about. Uh, <laughs> oh, we could we could get you back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's that aspect, you know. That this, this is something that I've been talking about since before the previous book. The previous book, to First Fight, was was called The Devil's Alliance, which was about the Nazi Soviet Pact. Mm-hmm. Um, about that, almost two years, twenty two months of the war between September thirty nine and um, June of forty one, Operation Barbarossa. In which essentially Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union are are functioning as allies, right? And this is something yeah. that this period, which is fascinating, by the way, much of it is subsumed in the Western narrative within you know the the, the so called phony war and all of that. The period in which allegedly not much is happening. There's a hell of a lot happening in Central Europe and Eastern Europe in this period. Not least Poland, but also the Baltic states and elsewhere. I mean, really interesting and hideous stuff that really deserves to be part of the narrative but isn't. So part of my sort of rage, if you like, is that through researching and writing that book, you have this sort of realization that Russia is this, was, or Soviet Union as was, but then Russia now as well. And, you'd, and this is why events the last few months have been so fascinating. It's essentially a rogue state, right? This is what I think the, the, mm. the mistake that Western historians have made and politicians all the way through the 20th century and beyond 
was to imagine or to kid themselves that the government in the Kremlin, whether it's modern Russia or it's the, the Soviet Union before it, yeah. was a rational actor. When at, whereas actually the government in the Kremlin is a rogue state that will do anything to you know, further its own ideology or its own, its own ambitions, whatever they are. Yeah. And is beholden to no one, will honor no treaty if it decides it doesn't want to, and is utterly unpredictable and unaccountable. And this, and you can see this all the way through. Once, once you kind of accept that vision and you, and you can, and you look back at the history, you, you will see with absolute clarity that this is, this is the actions of a rogue state. And you can see it in 1939 as well, that they lie to the world and they say, Oh, this is a humanitarian operation. Of course it isn't. It's an invasion. You know, you've told all of your soldiers that it's an invasion. They even told their soldiers that it was to be a lightning war, a blitzkrieg, right? Yeah. So <laughs> there's some lovely ironies in there as well. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So what are some of the key battles of the initial invasion of Poland that we overlook? Um, one of which you I don't mean... say all of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There. Um, there's a couple of key ones. The, the first one I mentioned just now, which is the Battle of the Bzura, which goes on for a good sort of uh, probably about two weeks of the five weeks, actually. And it was a really it's a really interesting campaign within the campaign because the um, the Germans are able because of the geography. If you can imagine the map of Poland pre-war, which is a different shape from how Poland is now. Poland is basically, you know, before a shot is fired, it's already within, you know, in the pincer, in the pincers of a of a German, or it's within a German pincer, shall we say? So you've got these sort of provinces of of Pomerania in the north, Silesia in the south, and then East Prussia, crucially, which almost looks like the you know the jaws of a pincer that's sort of biting mm. into Poland before they've even fired a shot. So the German invasion actually goes from goes in four general directions, not least directly south from East Prussia towards towards Warsaw. Um, but the main thrust comes up from Silesia and it comes up northeastward towards Warsaw. And that actually reached Warsaw on the 8th of September. So already a week into the campaign. So it's very swift advance. But the Poles managed to mobilize one particular, one completely untouched army, which had been bypassed by all of these various German advances and the remains of another army that had been sort of quite seriously mauled. And they were kind of milling around to the west of Warsaw, not quite knowing what to do, because a lot of communications had broken down. So they're milling around. Eventually, the, the commander of that untouched army, his um, very gifted general by the name of Kucheba, he opted to, to hit the German advance line facing Warsaw, that had reached Warsaw, but to hit it in its flank. So he's hitting not the, not the sort of armoured column at the very front, the sort of the... Um, you know, the elite troops and the members of the SS and so on who are right at the front of that column, but to hit the sort of supply column and so on in the rear, which he does very successfully. And this is the Battle of the Bzura that follows. It sort of flows back and forth across the territory, across the landscape of Poland for, you know, as I said, more or less two weeks uh, until it's finally sort of pushed back. You know, the Germans withdraw some of those spearhead troops from Warsaw 
uh, and throw them into battle against the against the poles at the Bzura. So it's one of those, you know, for, for anyone that extrapolates from this idea that the poles are sort of pretty rubbish in 1939 uh, and that they effectively rolled over, you just have to look at the Battle of the Bzura to, to understand that that's not the case, that they fought bloody hard against mm. the vastly superior enemy, it must be acknowledged, but they fought bloody hard and they actually acquitted themselves very well. And I think that's the message we have to take away from that. And the Bzura shows us that. The second, the second one that's worth mentioning is one of the sort of set pieces. It's a much smaller scale operation, but it's no less symbolic and heroic, is the battle for the Vesta Plateau. Now, you might have heard of the Vesta Plateau. I'm sure some of you, your listeners have. Mm-hmm. The Vesta Plateau was the, the sort of spit of land just outside Danzig, the city of Danzig far in the far north where the war actually starts. The first shots of World War II are fired by the German battleship Schleswig-Holstein, which opens, opens fire yeah. on the Polish, uh, fortified Polish customs post on the Westerplatte, right? So it's a spit of land which has been made in, in the 19, mid-1920s, it's made into a Polish customs post. And that was, that was one of the sort of key positions in, in and around the city of Danzig that the Germans wanted to take. And you've got a battleship, you've got, a group of about 250 Marines on the battleship who are landed uh, and attack it across uh, by land. You've got Stukas diving in to bomb the, you know, the hell out of the, um, the Polish installations there. And you've got a Polish garrison of about 200 men uh, with no, no artillery, no air cover. And they're basically trying to hold out until, you know, their own forces come and relieve them, which of course they never do. So it's a remarkable story, and the Poles actually hold out for for fully seven days against this uh, German force. Yeah, if I remember correctly, there's there's a couple of instances where they said the Germans' Marines just packing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I and mean, it's an astonishing story. It really is. Um, that's another one that I think you know I think is quite symbolic, even though it has no real sort of strategic significance. Not certainly not in the sense that that the Bzura does. But the Westerplatte sort of shows, it just shows German, um, Polish bravery and Polish pluck in, in standing aground and saying, you know, we're not going to give this up lightly. This is, our, this is our soil, which I think is remarkable. And I think that, that should be part of, you know, all of our um, sort of collective narratives of World War II. We should have the Westerplatte in there. I agree. I very much agree. It was, a, it was, a, it was a, just a great read in the book as well. Lovely, nice. To yeah, like you say, they keep co- keep coming in, and they keep getting their asses handed to them yeah. by the poles. Yeah. And you know, a week of artillery and air cover and naval bombardment, and, and they're still there. Yeah, and it's it is it's an amazing story. I know it's been made into a film. There's a Polish film made of it a few years ago, uh, which I think is of is of uh, moderate quality, shall we say? But um, it really deserves to be much better known, you know, outside of Poland. And this is this is part of the problem. You know, all of this stuff is well known to the poles, but in a sense. You know, they're, they're sort of constantly just talking to themselves and they just make their own films and their own TV series. And none of it ever gets out. And it's a lot of it, and not just World War II history, but, you know, Polish history is fascinating. And so much of it deserves a wider audience. And it is significant. It is important. We all need to understand it uh, or at least have, you know, at least a tenuous grasp of it. So this is to some extent, this is, you know, where I'm coming from. I'm, I'm, try- I'm yeah. kind of banging the drum and wanting people to to get a foothold in this fascinating history. Well, one of the other myths of the invasion then is 
you often hear that the Polish Air Force is just destroyed on the ground. Yeah. And that's not true, is it? No, absolutely not. Uh, again, the Poles, you know, they know they're, they're facing a very uphill fight against the Germans. They know the Germans have more aircraft, better aircraft, you know, better armed, all the rest, faster aircraft, all of that. They, they're under no illusions. And the first thing they do with the outbreak of war is that they disperse their, their, um, air force. So they're, they're, they're sent out from their sort of fixed airfields, which are all nicely, you know, beautiful tarmac and, and sort of nicely aproned airstrips. And they disperse them out to field air, air, airfields, basically. So they're landing on sort of grass strips and so on. And they, and they, they, they use those as their bases. So the first thing the Germans have to do after they've bombed all of these empty airfields that they thought the Polish airport air force were at, uh, is to try and find where they are. Right. So that's well, that's problem number one. And at the same time, you know, they're being harassed and, you know, the Poles actually do a pretty good job considering that they're P7s and P11s, which are these sort of fighters that they've got high winged monoplane fighters, which are primitive by German standards. But, you know, they're sort of, I suppose you would say late 20s, early 30s kind of vintage in terms of design. Mm -hmm. So not up to a Messerschmitt 109 standard, but, you know, they're, they're decent aircraft. They're not going in with biplanes, there. No, they? they're not. No, not at all. Um, I mean, the, pr- the main problem the Poles have, having said that, is that they can't, you know, in a straight race, they can't actually catch uh, 109s because they're not fast enough. So you have to kind of, you know, uh, take them almost head on or from the side or whatever it is. Um, but, they, you know, they, they, they take a decent toll of, of German aircraft in the opening couple of weeks of the war. And they're still fighting into, well into week three, uh, which completely, mm. again, completely dismells, dispels that, that sort of, again, German propaganda myth that they're all destroyed on the ground on day one. It's nonsense. It's simply not true. So that's another part of the myth that needs to be just demolished. Now, we've talked a lot about fighting against the Germans. Yeah. What, what resistance was put up against the Soviets? Yeah, so it's, it's a slightly, as I mentioned before, it's a slightly different campaign. Yeah. The Red Army goes in with substantial force, as I said, it was about half a million men, um, two and a half thousand aircraft, four thousand tanks, for example. Uh, and they, they're on their, their, their order for the day is to, without, um, uh, wanting to sort of sound the, the sound the, 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 the irony of the phrase, but their order of the day is to carry out a, a lightning attack against the poles. So their order is, uh, is to, you know, attack the poles with everything they've got. It's certainly not the propaganda story about sort of helping out local populations. That's nonsense. So they go in with everything they've got. The problem is for the Poles that on the eastern sort of frontier, they have basically not very much at all. They have units of border guards. They have a few sort of smashed units that have been withdrawn from the front against the Germans. They've got training units, um, not very much at all. So there's really no air cover. There's no artillery for them to draw on at all on the Eastern and it's a massive long Eastern front as well. Mm. So in many examples, the, the poles sort of, as I say, many of these border guards, they, they tend to execute a kind of a, not even a fighting withdrawal, but just a withdrawal because they realize that they're, they're just not going to survive against, you know, half a million men in the red army. There are a couple of set pieces that belie that there was some fortifications at a place called Sani that um, were defended to the last man, which is, again, quite a remarkable story. And there's a couple of sort of urban battles in places like Grodno and Vilna up in the north, and also in um, Lvov, the big city in the southeast, 
which actually the Germans reach first, and then it's sort of the, it's like a, a joint German-Soviet siege of a Polish city, which is quite interesting, um, because the Germans and the Soviets tended to keep apart from each other for for propaganda reasons, right? They didn't necessarily want to show the world that they were certainly the Soviets preferred to keep away from the, realizing how toxic the German brand was. Um, so they preferred to keep away from the Germans. But Lvov is one place where they actually, you know, collaborated in a sort of joint siege. So there's a couple of examples of, of urban warfare, which is where, you know, a, a much less well-supplied and less armed force can actually even up the odds a little bit by using, you know, urban, urban warfare techniques and, you know, Molotov cocktails and so on. So there's a couple of really quite sort of bitter urban battles in there as well. So it's a very, it has a very different kind of flavor to it, if you like, the, the war against the Soviets in 1939 compared to what's going on against the Germans. So we know we took in refugees and military personnel, soldiers, Polish soldiers and Polish yeah. service personnel into the UK. But given they're basically surrounded, Soviets to the east, Germans to the south and west, and obviously the Baltic to the north, yeah. how did these people actually get out and make it to, to Britain? Yeah, it's a good question. Poland's predicament, if you look at the map, I mean, any, anyone can pull up on, on Google a map mm. of uh, Poland in 1939, and you'll be able to see what I was talking about earlier on, that basically, you know, the the Germans are on three sides, effectively, north, west, and pretty much south, If particularly if you mm. include Slovakia, which is an ally of the Germans, of course, uh, has been declared itself independent the previous year, 1938, Munich. And actually, Slovakia sent 50,000 of its own troops alongside the Germans in the September campaign as well. So was actually a combatant ally of the Germans in 39. So if you look at that in those terms, the, Ger the Germans or German forces, German and allied forces, are on three sides. And then on the fourth side, as you say, you've got the Soviets. So where the hell do people go? They've only got two very small sort of friendly frontiers. There's one to the far north to Lithuania which is not particularly friendly because there's all sorts of conflicts that rumble on between Poland and Lithuania in the interwar period. But that's one mm. area where people could, could actually get to relative safety. But the main route out is to the southeast. There's a very sort of short um, stretch of frontier that Poland, interwar Poland shared with Romania. And that was a reasonably, again, a reasonably friendly frontier. So, the main evacuation of Polish forces and of, of the Polish government, the Polish high command, of the, of, um, of the gold for the Polish National Bank, of you know all the sort of treasures that they could get out of the museums in time and get loaded onto trucks and so on, all of that stuff tended to go directly southeast, um, hoping not to be cut off by the advance of the Soviets, of course, coming in via Lvov to the, from that direction. Many of them were. There's a couple of really quite vicious pitched battles against both Soviet and German forces in that period. As is, you know, the, the Poles are kind of funneling down to the southeast and they're being attacked on both sides. Mm. So you can, it's it's a really quite a nasty situation. So that's the direction that almost all of those that subsequently end up in France, you know, the airmen that end up in, you know, 303 Squadron and others in the Battle of Britain, for example, the Poles that end up in fighting in France in the Polish army in the West, and the remnants of which end up in in uh, in Britain, you know, retraining in Scotland and so on. They all come out through Romania, and they're initially um, interned by the Romanians because the Romanians are under pressure from the Germans to intern, you know, 
these defeated combatants. But they're, you know, the Romanian attitude is, you know, kind of, you know, laissez-faire, but but without without any of the urgency. So they kind of, well, you know, if you want to escape, you can escape. So they kind of let, you know, left the gate open, and and you know, they mm-hmm. put them all in these corralled prison camps, and then leave the gate open overnight. And of course, they all just disappeared. Um, as, as polls tend to do. Um, so they all, you know, made their way west effectively. So it, it, again, it's another, it's another part of this kind of odyssey that Polish forces engage in in World War II. You know, that, that's enough of an odyssey to have, to have fought in 39 against either side or in some cases both sides to then escape down through Romania, to be interned, to then escape from internment, find your way west, usually by ship, right? From Constanza in Romania on the Black Sea coast, they go round to Marseille and then they reformed in France and then they fight in France. They're defeated in France and then they fight again, you know, later on, they come to Britain and fight again under, under uh, British Aegis later on. So, I mean, that's a tremendous story in itself, even it's in its essentials that I've just described. Mm. And it goes back to what I was saying. We, 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 it, it kind of, it deserves to be better known. Yeah. I was one of the things that reminds me on the uh, subject of escaping from Poland. Um, I don't know if you saw, I think it was a year or two ago now, that, uh, and I'm going to put my cards on the table here, that god-awful miniseries World on Fire that was yes, on the BBC. I did. Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, I did. When I first watched I thought, yay, somebody's actually mentioning something about Poland. Yeah. And then you get you, you get two guys that, that seem to be in the main post office at Danzig. Yeah. <laughs> get out of there and then get evacuated from Dunkirk. And like anybody with a map can just go, they've just walked across yeah. Nazi Germany to yeah. get out. Yeah. What the hell? Yes, that would have been nigh on impossible. I mean, I, you know, like, as you can imagine, I, I fully appreciated the effort of telling the story. Um, but the way it was told, it, it, well, they needed me as an advisor, to be honest. That's, that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So just, just where we're going back to the, where we talked about the phony war earlier and there's lots of stuff happening in Poland and there's sod all happening in England. Yeah. Jenny Grant mentioned in her episode back in series two that the entire Polish, you know, idea was to to hold out until the British could yeah. attack from the east, and that just didn't work. Yeah, we've always had this portrayal of Chamberlain since then as this archipiezer, this guy that just won't make a decision, can't make a decision, is always waiting for the better thing to to turn up and sort everything out. Mm. Is that reputation really fair? Well, I've got, I mean, I'm kind of have conflicting um, opinions on that, actually. The first thing to say in, I think, in Chamberlain's defense is that Chamberlain is a respectable, serious politician who is trying to deal with, you know, huge events. Mm. And he's trying to deal with, well, one, one regime in particular, as in Hitler's, Again, I, I said earlier on that the Soviet Union was a rogue state. So was Nazi Germany, right? Driven by ideology, um, wasn't going to respect any sort of other powers and their opinions and their and the treaties that were signed with them and all the rest of it. You know, it's purely out for itself. It was like a sort of gangster state. And he's trying to deal with that and treat it as a rational actor. So the whole the whole ethos behind appeasement is completely rational, completely sensible. The, the the detail, you know, the idea being that, you know, Germany has been, as the the argument at the time had, Germany was harshly treated at the end of the First World War. So if we 
remedy some of those grievances that they have, territorial and otherwise. You know, they'll be the the anger, if you like, will be assuaged, and the regime will sort of normalize, and all of these sort of territorial threats will go away. Right? It's an entirely logical approach to the to the problem that you have in front of you from the perspective of a rational politician like Chamberlain. The problem that he has is that he thinks he's dealing with a rational politician in Hitler, but Hitler isn't rational, mm. right? Hitler's a gangster. Hitler's at the head of a rogue state, which has this crazy racial ideology and wants to expand and take over the world and all of that stuff, right? So that he doesn't really realize until it's too late that that's what he's dealing with. So you sign up with this, you know, the Munich conference, again, I mean, the Munich conference is a pretty shameful document, a pretty shameful event, but it, it's gone into with a good spirit, effectively, mm. of trying, British and the French, trying to solve this crisis that had been engineered by the Germans over the Sudetenland and yeah. Czechoslovakia, deliberately engineered, but they're trying to solve it in order to preserve peace in Europe, right? So it's an honourable intention. What, what, what they get out of it, which is the dismemberment of Czechoslovakia, is wholly dishonourable, and it doesn't even preserve the peace. But they thought this was a, a way of preserving peace. And, you know, if you could if you could just give, you know, if the Czechs would just give that sort of area of Sudetenland to the to the Germans, then maybe that would solve the, solve the problem of, of German aggression. So you have to sort of see it. You can't judge all of these things with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, because that's, yeah. not, that's not fair and that's not how the world works. You have to put yourself in the shoes of those doing it and see the world as they saw it. So this is why I think, I would generally, genu- sorry, generally be much more gentle on Chamberlain than I think a lot of other people are. That he was going at, about things, you know, in the right spirit, with honesty, with integrity, all of that. But he's dealing with people who would never be satisfied, who would never be honest. All of that said, when you jump forward to September of 1939, and Chamberlain, of course, is still prime minister, I think there are some profound failings in what the British and the French to a lesser degree, but what the British and the French do in terms of meeting those obligations that they had to Poland. Mm-hmm. Um, so both of them had, you know, committed with various degrees of, of precision as to what they would do in the event of a German attack on Poland. So the, 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 the French, for example, committed to, you know, sending the bulk of their forces against uh, the German frontier on the 15th day of mobilization, for example. They did nothing of the sort. Um, there was this very half-hearted SAR campaign, which was launched, I think, on the 8th of September, which, you know, they advanced for about five kilometers. Uh, they were shot at and they withdrew. It sort of redefined half-hearted. The British didn't have forces on the ground at, at that point. Um, so you can't accuse them of the same thing there as, the, as that sort of French half-heartedness. But they could have attacked in the air. And they did. they did have the wherewithal to attack from the air. They did bomb German naval targets in 1939, September 39. They also famously or infamously dropped uh, leaflets over Western Germany, imploring the German people to, uh, you know, stop being so awful. Words <laughs> <laughs> that That's just such a would British you, response. Well, you awfully mind just piping down. <laughs> would you awfully? It is like that, though. I mean, it's ridiculous. So you know, they were able to drop leaflets. That then surely they could have. They could technically have dropped bombs. You know that, but they didn't. Well, yeah. but the will isn't there to do it. The problem. I mean, there's a very there's a lovely exchange which I write in the book. Of um, there was a discussion in the um, in the British War Cabinet in September '39 about the possibility of of bombing. German sort of forming up areas which were behind the you know those 
few German forces that were the, resisting the, the, the French advance in the, through the Saar and so on. And they were paired right to the bone, those German forces. So if the French had gone in with real gusto, they could have defeated them, I'm sure. But they, there was a suggestion that they should bomb these sort of forming up areas where the German reserve was. And the, the, and the, and without a word of a lie, the, the objection is then raised in the, in the cabinet. And this is in the cabinet papers. You can see it. Um, it says, well, we can't do that, obviously, because that's private property. <laughs> Which is just the most ridiculous excuse <laughs> for not making war I've ever heard. So you can see there's a sort of complete, although I defend, like I said, I defend Chamberlain in 39, 38, because I think he's trying to do the right thing, even though he ends up not doing the right thing. But in 39, he's just the wrong man. You needed someone who was going to say, right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to hit the Germans. We're going to, you know, because the gloves are off, right? You've already declared war. So yeah. it's like we declared yeah. war and then did precisely bugger all and waited for ourselves and the French to be attacked in, in May 1940, essentially, right? I, I appreciate all of the logic and you can see it playing out. That's part of, part of the, the narrative in the book is also this, these sort of weasel words from the West where they're saying, oh, you know, the Poles, you're doing so well. Keep fighting. You're fighting for all of us. You're fighting for democracy. You're fighting for against tyranny, all this. Oh, and the subtext is, which we're not going to tell you, we're actually going to do nothing to help you at the same time. Yeah. So it's really kind of just weaselly, weaselly attitude from the Western powers, which I just, I thought I found actually quite shameful to research and to, and to write it. Um, it's a pretty shameful attitude uh, uh, episode in in British history, and I think that maybe is one of the reasons why you know the September campaign tends to get forgotten. Um, is that you know in a sense our our wartime history? You look at you know we talk about Dunkirk, which we've mysteriously we've mysteriously turned a sort of grievous defeat into some sort of moral victory. D Day obviously is a massive thing, and you know I can't say any, there's nothing to be gainsaid about that. You know, things like the Dam Busters, which is a great sort of technological story, again, massively overblown of very little significance in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, mm -hmm. our narrative of World War Two is to a large extent these sort of, you know, plucky victories by the underdog, you know, f uh, thanks to ingenuity or little ships or or technological brilliance of, of, a, of a lunatic like Barnes Wallace. That's kind of our narrative of the war. And the reality of 1939 is actually of a rather shameful capitulation on the British side that we didn't go in against, against the Germans as we had promised the Poles we would. We didn't really do anything to assist the Poles in spite of all the promises that we made. And that's rather shameful and, I, and, I, and rightly shameful. And I think that's part of the reason why it's collectively been forgotten. Well, thank you. We, we do end on slight, a slight of a low note. Yeah, there, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you very much, uh, Roger. That's uh, That's been truly eye-opening, and it was an impressive rage to kick off the new season. So uh, thank you very much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Well, if you'd like to know more about Roger's work, then you can start by buying the excellent books he's published so far, and uh, we will have links to the, all of those in the History Rage bookshop. And you can follow him on Twitter at Roger underscore Morehouse, um, where you'll get an awful lot more Polish rage. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you subscribe to us on Patreon, you'll be really helping us to meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, the invite to put questions to future guests and the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe 
at patreon.com forward slash history rage. Thanks a lot for joining us, and until next week, stay angry. Bye bye. Bye bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.